League of Women Voters and the Recording Library of West Texas present Tall City Elections. Here's your host, Michael Todd. Welcome to another episode of the Tall City Elections podcast. My name is Michael. This program is dedicated to providing information about the upcoming local elections as we make it accessible to our listeners who are visually impaired. The Tall City Elections 2021 podcast is a collaboration between the Recording Library of West Texas and the League of Women Voters. We want to thank all of our supporters for making this possible. With us today is Ross Schumann, District 1 candidate. Thank you for taking time to be with us today, Ross. Thank you very much for having me, sir. We appreciate it. Uh, before we get into the issues related questions, um, I've just been asking everyone about this because it's it's been such an impact on all of us. The last year and a half that things that we and everyone around us, our neighbors, have been going through, would you mind telling us how you and your family have coped during this difficult time? Well, for me and my family, honestly, a lot of our, our lives didn't change a lot because we already live a life. You know, my kids are homeschooled. They've been homeschooled since we they were little. So as far as, you know, educational wise, there wasn't a lot to change there. Because of the size of my family, I have six kids about to be seven. We don't go out to eat a lot because it's hard to find tables. So we tend to do dine out. We tend to get our food to go. We, you know, my wife does curbside shopping. So of course, some of those things were made a little more difficult just because, you know, instead of, hey, just get a curbside shopping appointment whenever you want, it was a little bit more of, okay, we got to figure out a time to get it and get the supplies that we need to support such a large family. But as far as our day-to-day -day lives went, I, I still went to work every day. My wife still homeschooled our children. She went to school. We still kind of lived our lives the way we were. We were lucky in that aspect that, that we, you know, we had a life that was kind of already conducive to living in a pandemic. That's 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 great that you were uh, already able to so easily adapt and, and things were kind of uh, in some ways, you know, same old, same old in terms of your day to day activities and so forth. Um, what has anything about the pandemic motivated you to run for city council? And I'll expand the question just to say what has motivated you to run? So what, what's motivated me about the pandemic is is watching people get upset at each other and, and want to turn neighbors into enemies. And what I don't want to see our city become is a city where we start treating our neighbors as anything but our neighbors. We have to remember that as a community, we're going to disagree on things. We're going to have disagreements on how things should be done. You know, when during this pandemic, we've seen very staunch opinions about how we should live our lives and go about our lives during this pandemic. I've had people who have, you know, attacked me because they thought I wasn't taking the precautions they felt necessary. But we have to understand that when we talk about living your life, we allow each individual member of our society to determine how to live their life the way they choose to be fit, as long as they're not invalidating the right to somebody else to do the same. And it's very important for me that we recognize that there's people in our city who are going to make decisions that are different than what we would make ourselves. You know, the way I live my life, the way I, you know, with having six kids, that's something a lot of people wouldn't choose for themselves. But I, I have, and it's my right to do so. And I wanna make sure that everybody in our city is given the respect and given the option to live their lives the way they see fit, the way they feel is best for them. 
and respect that their neighbors are going to make different decisions. And what I saw from our city and what I saw from our city leaders was uh, there were times that our individual liberties were not as respected as I would like them to be, where we were no longer given the right to make decisions. We were no longer given the right to choose what businesses to shop with, how to meet with our neighbors, what churches we could go to, things of this nature. And I wanna make sure that at no point in time do we allow for an instance such as a pandemic to remove the rights of our citizens and remove the right of people to choose for themselves how to live their lives. And I, I wanna clarify that, that I fully respect the people who have decided that they wanna wear their masks, that they wanna be vaccinated, I'm happy that those options are there for you. I'm happy that you have that opportunity to get that care that you feel is necessary. But what you cannot do is require anybody else to make those same decisions that you would. And you cannot act as if the people who are not making the same decisions as you are your enemy. They still are your neighbors. They're still people who want to try to help you and could try to help you in a time of need. And we need to be able to rely on the people around us even if they make different decisions than we do. So that kind of dovetails into this question that when I read your October 2nd column from the Midland Reporter Telegram, and you, you mentioned that, that businesses and churches should be left to decide for themselves, like, like as you say, what level of risk that they're willing to take. And, and a lot of that I know was, was related specifically to masking, but it, in kind of a related field here. This week, Governor Abbott has stated under the Texas Disaster Act that he can tell business owners that they cannot issue their own vaccine mandates. They can't make their employees get vaccinated. So is this the kind of thing where the government is getting getting into telling businesses how to run their own shops? Is is this like acceptable or do you disagree with that? That's it. it I really I'm still studying this issue because it's a 50 50 proposition. There is part of me that feels that the government has to protect workers, right? That, that workers' rights do exist and should exist and should be valued. And that a worker, a, a business should not have the right to determine whether or not one of their employees makes a health decision. So if, if we're going to allow businesses to decide on vaccine mandates, do we allow them to decide on whether or not you can, you, what your level of obesity you can be? Do we, do we allow them to decide whether or not you can be disabled and come work for them? Do we start allowing for some of those decisions? Because this kind of dovetails into that is if we're going to allow businesses to start determining what the health of their employees needs to be, then what do we, then how do we limit that back? But at the same time, Texas is a right to work state. Being that is that employees and employers work together on, on a completely voluntary basis. And that every employee that works for a company does so with the ability to, to quit at any moment in time. And that any employer can terminate the employment of an employee at any given time for any given reason. So there's both sides of the argument hold some validity. But it is important that we know that it's not a one-size-fit-all situation. We must make sure that government is allowing for workers' rights to be protected and, is, and not just protecting those who want to get vaccinated or don't want to get vaccinated, 
but also protecting those who make other health decisions, whether that be riding a motorcycle, whether that be smoking cigarettes, whether that be engaging in illicit activity. There's things here we have to make sure that businesses are not invalidating the rights of their employees outside of the office. So it, it is a very tricky question. I do think the governor should have left it to the legislator. My, my first scenario there is that he could have added it to the special session that's currently ongoing, and he could have allowed the legislator to make that decision, whether or not to allow for businesses to make that decision or not, and whether the legislator would decide how to handle that moving forward. I think in this scenario, you can live by executive decree and you can die by executive decree. And it's very important that even when executive decrees are something we like or, or are not opposed to, that we understand that executive decree is still that executive decree. And we should leave these decisions to the legislatures, to local governments to make these decisions and be more involved in what their communities want what their communities feel is best for them. And and I can tell that you've researched and thought a lot about this and you're right it's it is a tricky question and and it's kind of a slippery slope. You're you're really getting into a sticky wicket with a lot of these issues because someone can come back on the mask issue and say, "Well, I'm forced to wear a seatbelt um because of the safety of others." And and it's just so many so many questions I feel like have been brought up with this pandemic and as you said it unfortunately has pitted neighbor against neighbor which is which is very unfortunate. I'd like to move on. This is still related to the pandemic but it's more focused on the city and in regards to how so many different entities along with the city are so interwoven in what has been going on over the last many months. You've got the hospital, first responders, MISD, the mayor's office, the city council. And then, of course, and, and you know, looming in the background really large is our, our local economy, the energy industry, obviously, but then also retail and hospitality, which have all suffered. So in regards to the city, how do you think that it's responded to the COVID crisis and what learning experiences do you see that, you know, maybe we could take uh, that could be applied to more routine decisions that the city leaders regularly make? So for me, it shows that our city government, for a large part, tries to be reactive instead of proactive. And when we, when we talk about it in terms of that, what we're talking about is that the city government is not prepared. And, and I want to caveat that to say there's no way to be prepared for everything, right? There, there's no way you can simultaneously be prepared for any and every instance that could ever occur. But what we've seen too often is that our government is, is willing to act after something has occurred instead of taking steps to happen before. And in having conversations with people around city, I often hear, well, that's not a problem we face. But that's not a problem we face today. It doesn't mean that it won't be a problem we face tomorrow. So when we talk about economic diversity and we talk about other factors, while no, today it's not essentially necessary, it is something that is going to be necessary in the near to distant future. And we should start planning for that. We should start thinking about what our, what our role here is and what we can do to start preparing for that future. When it comes to pandemics, when it comes to illnesses and it comes to sicknesses and it comes to other things, there is room to start planning and to start getting basic infrastructure in place for this, whether that be a stockpile of PPE, 
making sure that we have masks, making sure that we have gloves, making sure that we have the things that our local population would need, as well as our hospital. And then also starting to plan for how these emergencies are handled on the local level. What is the routing? What, who is responsible for what? Making sure that those plans are put in place so that when that event happens, you can spring into action instead of starting to go, okay, now what do we do? When we saw the pandemic first hit, we saw reaction and overreaction. And overreaction occurs when you're not properly prepared. So if we'd have seen a city government that had taken more time to plan its, plan its events out, plan what its procedures would be and have those in place, they could have gone back and relied on that instead of pushing towards this, well, let's figure it out as we go mentality. We saw the mayor restrict the amount of occupancy to businesses. And this is something I don't agree with. This is something I don't think we should have done. I think the businesses should have been left and allowed to determine how they wanted to run themselves. When we talk about HEB, Walmart, Market Street, these big businesses and our local businesses, these are people who should be allowed to figure out what they can do to make sure their customers are safe. This is what they do every day. This is part of their normal operating procedures. So we should have empowered them, whether it be our big businesses or our local businesses, to make those decisions and to listen to their customers and to understand what was necessary. By limiting occupancy, we saw tensions rise even further because we saw more people hoarding, we saw more people being selfish and worrying about themselves because they didn't know when the next time they would be able to get supplies would be. So we have to make sure that we're not creating enemies out of our neighbors again. And I think that policy, which the city council unfortunately didn't do anything to even write a strongly worded letter opposed to that, allowed for more animosity amongst our neighbors, allowed for more issues than it solved. Well, and again, I'm, I'm thinking of other issues um, that when you mentioned like stockpile of PPE, just to, to, you know, to be ready for something that might happen. And I, I don't know, I was just thinking how if, you know, heaven forbid, say uh, an oil rig exploded or, you know, there was a chemical spill and then it that would involve, again, just like with the pandemic, the city working with the hospital, with first responders, with other agencies and so forth to deal with that situation. And some of these things that happened during the pandemic, you know, are there some lessons that we could take for future things that are not pandemic related, but other things that could, you know, conceivably happen uh, as they do from time to time? And I'm just wondering if you know, city council might look at these things that we've done like, well, maybe we need to set up a different communications method with, say, you know, first responders in the hospital. So we have a better, you know, a line of. Uh, so I don't know. I'm just I'm thinking out loud here. No. And, and, you know, you're not incorrect. It's definitely necessary that we have those conversations now. You know, you don't plan for war on the first attack. You plan for war in peace. So you know what you're going to do. You have your soldiers trained and ready to go. You are, you know, people, there's a lot of people who will say, you know, I'm a 10-year veteran. 
And there's a lot of people who will say, well, you know, we spend this much money training soldiers and there's not even a war. But you don't start training your soldiers when the war starts. You have your tra soldiers ready to go in case of war. And this does not – this applies to how we should operate as a city government. We should be ready at a minimum for these type of events to occur. And we have to understand that COVID will not be the last pandemic. Unfortunately, we are likely to see another pandemic. And we're likely to see it within the next half century. So we have to start thinking about how we are going to respond and how we are going to be prepared for such an event. And while there's things we can't do, we can't magically make more hospital workers show up. We can't do a lot of things of that nature. What we can do is we can start creating stockpiles of durable goods, masks, gloves, hazmat suits, things of this nature, that would be available when necessary so that we're not then reliant on a failing supply chain when a global pandemic hits to find these necessary items. And we're not competing with every other city and every other country around the nation, around the world for those supplies, that we have them ready and able to go. Do you think that the conversations like such as, do you think that, the city has looked at back over the last few months and talked amongst themselves about, okay, this is what we did. Here's what worked. Here's what didn't. Here's what we can take learning going forward and try it this different way. Do you think those conversations have taken place? I think there's some of those conversations have taken place, but I think there's some conversations that have just been defensive towards what they did do, even if that wasn't the correct method. You know, unfortunately, politics has become very involved in this scenario, and it's, it's always going to be. But what we can't do is we can't allow politics to cloud our decision making or our judgment of what happened. We can't look through cherry rose covered glasses when it's somebody we politically like versus when it's somebody we politically don't. We have to understand and have to look back and say, these are the things that occurred. These are the things that went right. These are the things that went wrong. And be honest and true about those. People can make bad choices in a moment. People can overreact and make a bad, you know, I, I don't think the mayor had poor intent when he limited occupancy of buildings. I think he had good intent, but I don't think that policy was great in the end. Now, I don't think, again, that the mayor was trying to do anything to harm anybody. I don't think he was trying to be uh, you know, poor or, or, or harmful to anybody. But the policy, I don't think, benefited our community. And I want to make sure that when we look back at this, we can look at the mayor and say, this is not you as a person. This is a specific decision. And this is where we think we could have done better here. But I also think this is where the city has to start planning for the future. It has to start being proactive instead of reactive. And we have to start knowing that things are going to occur. And as a city government, we have to be at least at a minimum ready to respond to the initial event. Gotcha. Um, and I think we could go on with this for, for so long, but um, I should probably move on. And But it's to something still related to the pandemic. And that is the lack of access to mental health. And I think the pandemic has, you know, exposed that previous situation. 
Um, and because before the pandemic, access to health care, mental health care in Midland has been challenging. There's very few psychiatrists. There are few affordable options for therapy. And it's not unique to Midland. I can't think of a way the city council can take on the problem by itself, but shouldn't the council recognize this is a problem and look for ways to facilitate solutions, maybe in conjunction with other entities? Well, there's where you say it, right? You said it correct. This is not a problem that's significant, or not, I'm sorry, it is significant. This is not a problem that's distinct to Midland. This is a problem that's distinct everywhere. Unfortunately, we saw a significant uptick in suicide attempts among our preteen and teenagers during the pandemic. We saw a large portion of that community, of that age group, have mental health concerns. And that's not just them, but those particular individuals saw a large uptick. We saw upticks in other things, such as such as obesity. We saw upticks in sedentary lifestyles. So there's a lot of room for the city and for the country and for the world to get better. Unfortunately, mental health is a, is a very tough subject. So as a veteran, I'm, I'm unfortunately very well aware of how mental health can impact somebody's life, recently losing a good friend of mine to suicide, who I had spoken to hours before I found out about his suicide. So it's something that hits home. It's something that's impactful to me. For a long time, if you Googled my name, the only thing that came up was an obituary for a good friend of mine from basic training who unfortunately killed himself as well. So mental health is something we're going to continue to struggle with, and it's something that we have to start looking at how we can best address this. And telehealth options have become more and more prevalent in our society. And these are options that are good because we don't need the therapist to be in Midland. We don't need those people to be here locally. Therapy is something that can occur remotely. You don't need somebody to see you in person in order to be able to talk to you, in order to be able to help you, in order to be able to work through some of the pain, some of the issues you're having. But we also have to understand the stigma of mental health. You know, Midland's a town that's a lot built on tough guys and, and oil field workers and getting out there and being strong and, and being these people. But mental health is not something that only affects people who are weak of body. It also affects people who are strong of body. And everybody needs to understand that mental health is something that they need to take care of if necessary. There's times in my life I've struggled with my mental health, and I've had a strong support group of people that I can lean on and rely on to help me with those things. But we need to make sure that the people of our city have knowledge of and access to telehealth options through the state, through the local governments, and that the people who need that care are able to get it, are able to find it. So while we might not be able to attract a lot of therapists or mental health professionals to Midland area, and it would be very difficult to do so at, on a city government scale. What we can do is work with the state to understand the options that are available and make sure our citizens are aware of those options and know how to access those options and are given opportunity to use those resources through our local government. I'm glad that you brought up the, the telehealth because when my wife and I were vacationing in Colorado in August, I had my normal weekly therapy session through telehealth with my therapist. It was very easy and, and to do, and, um, 
And I and I have talked about that. We've discussed that, my wife and I, about how there are some areas of the telehealth that are more challenging for doctors, say someone who is, uh, a, you know, a kidney doctor or, you know, a specialist in something that, you know, they need to be able to feel or whatever. But but therapy, it's it's tailor made. I agree with you that it's tailor made for for telehealth. I, I think there's a lot of things that still require you to go to a doctor's office. And I'm not saying that people should not have the option, of course, to seek therapy in person if they feel more comfortable with that. But the nice thing about telehealth therapy is that you can be wherever you want to be, wherever you're most comfortable, wherever you feel safest to have that conversation. And, you know, as a person who has unfortunately, you know, my last name, unfortunately, is often synonymous with uh, a manic depressive disorder because of Robert Schumann, the famous composer, who's you know, really the first known clinical case of manic depressive disorder. And having family members who have suffered from depression, knowing friends through the military who have either suffered from or succumbed to mental health issues. It's about feeling comfortable to have that conversation. It's about feeling safe in your environment to, to reach out to somebody. And for some people, being in an office experience is, is overwhelming to them. And, and sometimes that doesn't is not conducive to them opening up and talking about the things they need to talk about, even in a psychiatrist's office. Whereas when they're at their home, that's when these thoughts occur. The other side of telehealth is that it's almost available at any given time. You can find somebody to speak to whenever those thoughts are occurring, not waiting for an event or waiting for an appointment to get a chance to speak to somebody. Because unfortunately what we know is that somebody who has suicidal thoughts really needs about 10 minutes. If they have a suicidal thought, within 10 minutes they can act on that suicidal thought. And of course, once the action has occurred, there's no opportunity to reverse that option. They need help now, not a week from today, not 30 minutes from now. They need that help now. And as you mentioned, so much there's been so much in in terms of preteen and teenagers and then also people who are in college i i have nieces and they couldn't go to their senior graduation because of uh, last year and uh they couldn't go to class and the, when they were doing the classroom remotely virtual learning it was a completely inferior experience to being in the classroom and there were a lot of college people who were who were depressed or had issues and then people who are middle-aged like me who have a good job can be affected. People who are veterans, such as you, people who are uh, make up the bulk of our audience of the recording library of West Texas radio station who are seniors, um, very, very susceptible to different types of mental issues. And the pandemic has just, it's just it made it explode. Uh, I do think uh, this is me intersecting my comment here. I do think if there is an upside Maybe the pandemic has shown a light on the problems with uh, mental illness in this country and, and all over, but in particular this country, and hopefully that awareness can lead to some kinds of improvements in getting access to mental health care. That's, that's what my hope is. My, I think you, you, you're not incorrect there because I think what a lot of people saw during this pandemic is that they saw their own mental health issue. 
And once they saw how easy it can be for themselves to have that kind of issue, to slip into a depression, to slip into, you know, allowing stress to become a major burden on your life, you know, as you were missing out on family events, as you were unable to cope, as you were scared and worried about the future and what it might bring and, and you know, what the health and life of your family is going to be, your own financial situation. They maybe more people, and I think more people did, they saw their own mental health. And because of now seeing how easy it is for their own mental health to be an issue, now they can see how easy it is for some other people. There's, I think there was often a time where there were people who thought that some people who thought struggled with mental health didn't have a valid reason to struggle with mental health. And stress is different for every individual person. What stresses me out and what stresses you out can be completely different. Our levels of stress tolerance may be hugely separate from one another. So what I consider to be a stressful event, what you consider to be a stressful event is a matter of perspective. And we have to understand that each individual has those different stressors and has those different mental health issues and that each and every one of us needs to be able to access that, that help when it's available and when it's necessary. And I, I think, I hope that what this pandemic did if there was one positive, as you mentioned, is that it showed people that mental health is not something to be taken lightly and is not something to not be concerned with, that we all need to prioritize being able to access mental health help. I, I think that you, you said that very well, and I, I hope so too. I hope it is uh, taken just a small nick. As of you said earlier, Texas, especially West Texas, very, you know, rough, you know, hardy kind of people. And and before where it was a pull yourself up by your own bootstrap, you know, hopefully now maybe it can start to be not as much of a stigma and it's, hey, you know, do the best you can and here's some tools, whether it be therapy or whether it be whatever, to help yourself pull yourself up by your own bootstrap. You know, that's that's always gonna be the truth is that we, we are capable as human beings of a lot of things. And sometimes we need other people to get out of our way. And sometimes we need other people to reach out a helping hand. So it's, it's definitely a scenario where we need to be able to rely on our neighbors when necessary. And this goes back to what I said earlier about the pandemic, not making enemies of our neighbors over a situation where we just have a difference in opinion. And being able to still come back and say, you know what, we didn't agree on this but I'm still your neighbor and I'm still gonna help you out when you do need me. If I could move on um, from this to uh, bringing up what I mentioned just a couple of seconds ago is uh, a large portion of our audience and uh, those are the seniors. And I had wondered if you have visited the senior centers uh, in Midland and I know many of them, you know, they had to curtail their activities like, like many other things because of the pandemic, but they're kind of slowly coming back online. And if you can see some improvements, some different ideas, some other things that maybe the senior centers might be able uh, to do for that population of Midland. So, you know, when we talk about senior centers and we talk about some of these assisted living centers and things of this nature, one of the things I saw during the pandemic was when these facilities no longer allowed visitation, no longer allowed these members to have their family members come around or to have that access to people, their loved ones. Even if, even if people suffering from Alzheimer's still benefit 
from seeing loved ones and having supportive people around them. And, you know, while I haven't had the opportunity to visit a lot of these centers throughout Midland, one of the things I did spend my year working on was a constitutional amendment that would allow for people in these facilities to designate a specific person who will never be denied access to come visit them. When we're talking about this local election, we have more than just a few things to worry about. You know, we have our city council election. We also have eight constitutional amendment proposals in the state of Texas. And we need to make sure that we're talking about all the different things that I'm looking right now. Okay, Proposition 6, the constitutional amendment establishing a right for residents of certain facilities to designate an essential caregiver for in-person visitation. This would allow anybody living in a, a, a assisted living facility, a senior facility, any such facility such as that, to designate one of their family members as that person, and that person cannot be denied access to come visit them. Unfortunately, we've seen that there are some times that these assisted living facilities and these other facilities, when they're not being watched, don't necessarily treat our senior citizens as well as they should be. We know that with accountability, with visibility, with transparency, conditions get better. When a, when a child is coming and seeing how their mother or father is being treated, then all of a sudden, those people are able to make concerns noted and changes occur. But when we don't have that visibility, when we don't have that transparency, unfortunately, we saw seniors get hit very hard in this pandemic, not only by the virus, but also by depression, but also by mistreatment by some facilities. And I don't know that that happened in Midland, but I know that it's important that we continue to allow our seniors to have the rights to have their family members visit them and have their family members see them, understand how they're being cared for, and talk with their doctors and medical staff to make sure they're being treated well. I have to mention with that that this year, we had to move my mother into a memory care unit of an assisted living facility, and it's uh, six blocks away from me. And unfortunately, because of the pandemic, uh, one of the safety things that they have in place is now you have to, you basically, you have to set up an appointment. And the, the reason being, the rationale is they, they only want so many outside visitors in the assisted living facility at one time. And, and, I, and I see their point of view, and I do use it. Uh, but I also remember one of the things that I've known for a long time, especially since working at the recording library, uh, where assisted living centers are concerned, you know, even the good ones, uh, family members, they need a, the person who's there need an advocate. And family members have always been encouraged to go visit at irregular days and times, not have a set pattern. And that way, you know, these these folks who work there, they see that their family is coming to visit them regularly. And they there there have been articles written that that, that say that those who have regular family members visit uh, have better care. I don't know whether that's good or not, but it makes sense to my mind. And sometimes, you know, I don't sign up. <laughs> I break the rules. I don't sign up with their their slots. I just go and visit so they don't know that I'm coming. 
I'll tell you a little personal anecdote, okay? So okay. I served in the I served in the Texas Army National Guard for 10 years. And there were times in the Texas Army National Guard that on a drill weekend, we may not have had that much to do. So what we would do is we would physically move things from one side of the place to the other side of the place so that if somebody showed up, it looked like we had done something. <laughs> and when they left, we would move it from that side back to the other side so that when they showed up again, it looked like we had done something again. So it, <laughs> while we weren't doing very much, it still looked like we were. And by making those irregular visits, you're able to catch somebody doing stuff that when they know you're coming and going, they can plan for it. And when they don't know you're coming and going, no, now they can't plan for it. And while I'm not saying that that's an issue that is prevalent in Midland, and I, I'm not aware that it is, it's still good to allow for transparency and it's still good to allow for accountability. And by the state, which I worked on this constitutional amendment, by the state allowing for a constitutional amendment that you have the right as a senior to designate a family member to come and see you and cannot be denied access to you by the facility, I think that empowers our citizens, our senior citizens, to get better care and better quality of care. That's very well said. Now, I want to move on to kind of the meat and potatoes of city government, and it's infrastructure, everybody's favorite topic. Um, could we could we talk about streets, water, and sewer, and like where you see them now, how we make improvements, and how we pay for those improvements? So that's the core of my campaign, is that I believe we have to focus on the foundation of our city. I think for a while now, we've thought about the foundation of our city, but not really prioritized or committed to it. While paying for such a thing is not gonna be cheap and not gonna be easy, and definitely putting it off for 20, 30 years has not made it any cheaper or any easier. It's something that we have to commit to now because putting it off any longer is just going to continue to increase its costs and increase its problem. So I liken it to changing the oil in your car. Nobody likes going and getting oil changed in their car. It costs 50, 60 bucks. It's annoying. It takes time out of your day, but it's a necessary thing that must be done. And if you don't do it, the cost to you that you may save a little bit of time and money now, the cost to you later is gonna be much greater than what you save today. So when it comes to our roads, when it comes to our water and our sewer, we have to be more proactive. We have to be more prioritized to taking care of those situations, those, those solutions. Great parks are nice, but if they're underwater or flooded with sewer backup or the roads that lead to them will cause you to lose an axle in your truck, they don't serve a very good purpose. What our people of our city expect when they pay their tax money is that they're gonna have great roads to drive on that they're gonna have adequate water and that they're never gonna have to worry about their water supply, that when they flush the toilet, it goes somewhere and they don't have to deal with it. These are the things that people expect from government. And we as a city must start prioritizing our budget to dealing with those topics. When we talk about that, what our city needs to do is they need to allocate funding for all of those projects for our fire and our police department then see what's left in the budget 
that can be used for quality of life, quality of place initiatives. That's not to say that we don't need quality of life, quality of place initiatives, but it's saying that we have to prioritize the foundation of our city. As a certified project manager, one of the things that I know is that you cannot build a home or a building or anything on a bad foundation. When we talk scripturally, Christ told us, do not build your house on the sand, build your home on the rock. That means we have to have a great foundation in order to build on. And if we're building parks or other options on poor foundation, it's going to crumble. So we have to come back as a city and we have to say it's time that we make this our number one priority as a city and we start making real steps to prevent to actually rebuilding all of our foundation. When it comes to roads, when it comes to infrastructure, we had a hundred million dollar bond and we completed a lot of projects and yet our infrastructure as a city got worse. So it's time that we understand that not only do we need to prioritize our spending, but we also have to make sure that that spending is being done effectively and efficiently. We have to make sure that projects are completed on time and to scope. What happens when you get scope creep is you get cost creep. When projects start out being limited to this specific thing and then we start adding, that's when we start seeing the cost skyrocket. That's when we start seeing the time for the project to be completed to skyrocket. When you build a house, you start with a floor plan and you start with a layout of how you're going to build that home. If you start adding things in the middle or start adding things at the end, your costs are gonna go through the roof as they now have to modify and change what they were already doing to make it fit that. So when we talk about our city government, when we talk about our local city, we have to build that foundation. And we're not building that foundation for us. We're building that foundation for our kids and our grandkids so that they have a city that's worth living in 20 to 50 years from now, so that they are able to raise their families here, that they're able to bring their kids here, and that they're able to have a successful and happy life as well. You know, Midland, going back to just specifically the roads, which is such, that's always a really big issue and in, in, in most cities. And, and I will say, you know, in my, in my home, first hometown, my Midland is my second hometown. My original hometown okay. where I grew up is San Angelo, and I still read the San Angelo newspaper. In fact, I narrate it for the recording library, and we broadcast that paper as well. And I'm the reader for it, so I keep up with things there. Their city leaders have come under you know, great fire because they've just let the roads, people, they're, the biggest complaint of the citizens are roads. And they just kind of, they didn't have a plan in place for rehabilitation and reconstruction. And so now they're, they're starting a plan, but they're basically having to look at, oh, well, we're going to have to look at the most, you know, critical needs right now. And it's going to take years for them to get into that loop of, like what you say, changing the oil. It's like, we're going to work on these roads this year, and then next year we work on these roads. And it goes into a, a cycle where they can constantly be up to date. And Midland, that seems to be a big complaint as well as the roads. And Midland, of course, has all of these oil field trucks, these large vehicles 
that you know really punish the road. So it's a, it's an important thing and. I don't know. It doesn't really do any good to point fingers and look backward, but it's just I don't understand how, as you say, citizens expect some certain things from city government and good roads is a pretty basic thing. And I That's correct. I don't know, you know, and again, I'm not picking on Midland city leaders because I'm bringing up San Angelo with this as well. This seems like it's not an uncommon thing that that happens in, you know, cities. But how does it happen? Did we just take the eye off our eye off the ball? Did we look at what? different things? Or are we hearing so many from residents who say, I'm tired of my taxes going up, so we just kick the can down the road? For me, what I look at it, what I see is that people have been more concerned about the 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 eye popping things, the parks, you know, the big buildings and things of this nature that, that draw your eye. Roads are not something that draw people's eye, right? It's not something that looks pretty and that you can put an ad in the newspaper saying, look what I did. But it's a vital part of our city governance is required to get good roads. When we talk about, again, the value that our citizens are getting for their tax dollar. And if people do not feel that they're getting good value for their tax dollar, they'll leave. They'll move somewhere else. They'll go somewhere where they feel they're getting better value for their tax dollar. And value is subjective, of course. Every one of us has a different value proposition. But what we're seeing in Midland is that people are starting to say, we're not getting the value on our dollar for what we're paying. When we talk about the taxes in Midland, with an 8% property tax increase this year, and I'm not talking about just the rate, I'm talking about overall property taxes, 6% valuation increase, and a 2.25% increase in the tax rate, people are going to pay 8% more on average in property taxes. We have to prioritize that funding. We have to understand that it's an essential portion of what our city government is expected to do. And if we can't start providing for that, and we don't start bringing in leaders who are going to make those prioritizations, we're not going to see improvements. When we talk about our city's infrastructure, this is not a new issue. This is not something that occurred yesterday. This is an issue that's been ongoing for decades. And we've had city leaders who have been there for a large portion of that time who have yet to make the prioritization of our budget to start addressing that solution. It's not gonna be cheap, it's not gonna be easy, and it's not gonna be quick. We're not going to fix our roads overnight, but we have to start working towards it. We have to start prioritizing our projects and our city and making sure we're rebuilding from the ground up and stop worrying so much about building from the, from the top down. Do you think that you can get and the other city leaders in that position can get the buy-in from the public? To when you go and say exactly what you just said, which I, I, I like the way that you phrase that. It's not going to be easy, cheap, or quick. And and you're just, this is the good, the bad, and the ugly. Are the taxpayers and the citizen going to say, oh, they're just coming at me again. They're just coming at me again. I mean, how is there some maybe some education of the taxpayers that will need to take place in order to present this, hey, this is this is what we're going to need to do for this infrastructure. So when it comes to another bond, so I think that's where we got to look at that conversation, because 
the $100 million bond that we passed in 2017 was a five-year bond. So that money is gone next year. And the city has been using that money. But what it's going to take is rebuilding the trust with our constituents and rebuilding accountability that they know that that money is being is going in a good place, is being used appropriately. But not only that, that they know that the city is matching that commitment. And what I think we saw over the last five years is the city did not match the citizens' commitment to rebuilding our infrastructure. The city used the citizens to rebuild our infrastructure and instead shifted some of their spending to other wants instead of needs. And when we talk about different things throughout the city, when we talk about parks, we talk about roads, we talk about sewer and water, parks are important. I have six kids. I'm well aware of what a park can provide for a young family. But at the same time, I want my kids to grow up in a city that is well-built, well-constructed, and able to handle its citizenry. And when we talk about the recent flooding we've seen in Midland with the poor drainage, and we're cutting funding for drainage projects in the city of Midland over the last four years. We've cut money for drainage projects. When we talk about what we're spending on water and sewer, what we talk about when we're building our roads. We have to prioritize those options and we have to make sure that the people of our city start seeing that value. When we talk about that is that they start seeing that their city is getting better, that the roads are better, that they're better taken care of, that the city is more responsive to issues is more willing to do maintenance and do short-term projects to help elongate the life of a road versus doing long-term complete rebuild projects because they neglected maintenance. When people see cones, right, they assume work's being done. But when they see those cones for months and months and months, they start to get frustrated. But if they saw those cones and they said, okay, the cones were here for a week or two, they're gonna start saying, Okay, they were doing something small to prevent large work later. Again, going back to changing the oil or changing the brake pads on your car. We do these small things to keep the car running much longer and to save ourselves time and money moving forward. And if we're not willing to do those, people don't see the value in continuing to spend the amount of money we ask our citizens to spend in property taxes without getting that return. I'd mentioned this with uh, another candidate interview. And when, when I came into being into the radio profession, one of the things early on that I was taught was tell them what you're going to do, meaning your audience, tell them what you're going to do, do it, and then tell them what you've done. So like in the things like you mentioned for the streets, it seems like with cities, when a project gets completed, well, you know, of course, time is money and we've got a lot of stuff we have to do. So let's cross this off the list and move on to the next thing. And I'm wondering the part of you tell them what you've done. It seems like that's sort of not always that doesn't always happen. And I'm wondering the city told the taxpayer, hey, we completed this project and it was on time and it was under budget, and this is the improvement that we told you in the beginning it was going to make, and that is the case. Is that something that 
you know, is that just a waste of time, or do you think that might be beneficial into getting voters more, voters, citizens, taxpayers, to maybe fund the next thing down the road? Because they say, oh, they're, they're being good stewards of our money. Yeah, they're saying we need to do this next thing, so yeah, let's do that. So, of course, but what those things can't happen is that can't just happen when a re-election cycle is occurring. We can't wait to hear about all the things that have happened just when somebody is all of a sudden seeking our vote again. We need to make sure that's occurring continuously. And now the city does have a website where they list the projects that are ongoing and the projects that have been completed, but a lot of people are not aware of that website or how to access it. So it's, it is about communication. It is about telling people and convincing them of the value that they're receiving for their tax dollar. But that's not to say then that the city can shirk away from committing on the other side, the same as the citizens are committing. So when we talk about asking our citizens to cough up a little more money, to tighten their own belts, to make this problem better, the city has to be willing to match that commitment. And they have to be willing to show the citizens that we have as much concern for this issue as you do. And that we're not just gonna ask you to handle the situation, we're also going to prioritize that on our level, and we're going to make sure to actually get solid accomplishments in this level. Unfortunately, what we often see is we see local politicians who want to take credit for the work once it's been completed, once it's time to get reelected. But they're not honest about the total situation. So we recently saw op-eds in the paper of city council talking about all the projects that have been completed, but yet none of them mention the fact that in the same time frame, that our city's infrastructure has actually gotten worse. That's the honest truth. And that's telling and being accountable to your coder what has occurred and what needs to continue to occur. And I think the problem with that is, is that when we would say that although we spent this amount of money and we've gotten these projects completed, that if we showed infrastructure did not get better, it would show the voters that the city council did not commit at the same level they asked the citizen to, to fixing this problem. Okay. Um, I wanna ask you this question that no one else has been asked just because uh, it was in the Midland paper today. Uh, MDC selling 58 acres to National Tenant, the David Mims Business Park on I-20 was sold for $2.166 million. How do you feel about the Midland Development Corporation? My feelings on the Midland De Development Corporation is that we've become over-reliant on them. We've become accustomed to using them instead of empowering our citizens. So there are times that the MDC has, has done good things but at the same time, it can't be a situation where we only rely on the MDC for economic development. I wanna make sure that we empower our citizens, that we educate them, that we teach them what they need to do to create a business. And what I think the MDC could become is that source of, indication, of education to our citizens. What I think our citizens should be able to do is walk into MDC and say, I want to start a business in X, Y, or Z, and the MDC hand them a list of the licenses and regulations that they need to know about in starting those businesses, and then be able to tell them where's resources to go through 
to either get the licenses, to get registered as a as a company, or to then get the regulations and be in compliance with them. What we could do there is we could educate and empower our citizens to take the lead in our economic development instead of relying on the MDC to fund it. When we talk about the MDC there, we're not talking about the MDC giving money to every citizen in order to start a business, but into educating citizens in how to create a business, how to create a business plan that they can go to a bank and get a loan, teaching them which banks will give that type of loan, what, helping them make appointments with loan officers, helping them understand how to do profit and loss statements, helping them understand how to do their, how to do their business filings. These are all things I think the MDC could be more proactive on and be more involved in. And while they do work with UTPB on the small business incubator, that's a competition that where a lot of people are competing for a small pool of money. I don't want it to be where the city is involved in funding our local businesses. What I want it to be is where the city is helping our local entrepreneurs understand what they need to do to go into business, to be compliant with the local tax and regulation policies, and then be successful in starting their businesses. So more is like help people with the red tape and education. Help people understand what they need to do. Yes, the red tape. So when we talk regulations, we talk increasing barriers to entry. Every time we add more regulation, we increase the barrier to entry to somebody to start a business. We make it less likely that they're going to want to start that business because we just give them something else to deal with. We know that 95% of companies fail in the first five years and that the primary reason they fail is financial. And a large portion of that finance now is related to dealing with regulations and understanding how to cope with them and understanding to deal with them. And if you don't, paying the fines that are levied on you when you're caught not complying. So I think what our NBC could be more available to do is helping people understand what regulations are going on, what will be applied to your business, what state licenses do you need to have, what type of business structure is best for you? Should you be an LLC? Should you be a type C or type S corp? Should you be a, a private equity firm? Should you do these other things? And then understanding how to start that business and helping somebody through that process so that if anybody in our city wants to start a business and has the drive to do so, that they have a resource to come back to, to understand what they need to do. Not somebody who's going to do it for them, but somebody who's going to tell them what they need to do to make sure they have the knowledge to go and do those things. And one of the things that I, I believe the MDC and then certainly the city of Midland have been involved with now for a long time is reestablishing the nonstop flights to and from Austin with Southwest Airlines. Um, how do you see this development benefiting, or does it, benefiting uh, the Midland area financially, quality of life, in any of those areas? So that is a very much two-sided sword. Because when we talk about ease of access to get to Austin or for people from Austin to get to here, that's great. But on the flip side of that, what's gonna make happen is that more people are gonna choose to spend their free time outside of Midland, which means 
more sales tax revenue leaving the city, which means more local shopping being done somewhere else. So while personally, I love that Southwest has created a nonstop flight straight to Austin because I have family that lives near Austin and that's something I'm gonna utilize. I do worry that that's gonna further incentivize people to spend more time outside of Midland. Now, what we shouldn't do is say, oh, well, we should cancel that flight because of that. What we should say is we need to empower our citizens to be more involved in creating local businesses and entertainment that are going to keep them here, that are going to make them want to stay in Midland, want to stay here and spend their money, want to spend their weekends and other days here, helping to attract better entertainment, better businesses, new sports teams if necessary, that are gonna give people more things to do in their local community instead of wanting to travel somewhere else. And then if we do those things, not only will that flight not harm us, it'll start to benefit us as people from that community start to want to come here. That's what I was just about to ask. And want to start taking part in what we're doing here. Austin, a lot of people want to go to Austin. They want to go there because there's things to do. There's the Circuit the Americas race. You've got the F1 race or the Formula One race going to be happening, what, this weekend or next weekend? So there's big events that people want to go to Austin for. And I'm happy that they're going to be easily to get there. But I want us to start getting events here. So one of the things I've looked at is a USL soccer team. So you're probably well aware of Major League Soccer. Yes. So... Major League Soccer has essentially a a development league called USL. So it's a a lower-tier soccer league. They have one in Austin. So Austin has an MLS team and a USL team. What that would allow us to do, we have the Charbroil Sports Complex. We have the Grande Communication Stadium. We have a large stadium that could host soccer games that's already painted as a soccer field. So what we could do is if we brought a USL team here, we could further utilize that complex that city owned and allow for more people to be involved in their city and and get behind a sports team and allow for more family entertainment within the city, allow for people to have something to do and allow for us to utilize an expense that we've already made, an investment that we've already made. So what I would do as a city, as a city leader, is I would approach any business owners who are willing to invest in bringing a USL team to Midland and offer to allow them to use the stadium, but not pay rent on the stadium and instead do a ticket revenue sharing program where if they sell tickets, the city gets revenue back off those ticket sales. And then allowing the city to operate concession stands and other things throughout the stadium that will help generate additional revenue for the city. Instead of the stadium only being used a few times a year for high school football games and local games, allow that stadium to become the home field for a USL soccer team, or if we can find a semi-pro football team that that allows us to build and gain in the community instead of just having the stadium sitting there. As I I mentioned, the part where you said, you know, the flight to and from Austin, it goes both ways. So, yes, it could take some money weekend, you know, tax dollars that people might spend in Midland that they will spend in Austin. But there's also the the fact that, well, it could bring Austin people to Midland because as I mentioned before we got on the air with our interview here, 
that uh, I lived in Midland from 1999 to 2016, and then I met my wife on eHarmony, who lived happened to live in Austin. And it was easier for me to move with my job than for her to move, so I came to Austin. And I was excited to hear about this flight to and from Austin, not only because, oh, it'll be easier for me to go for meetings at work, you know, if we if we want to, you know, have a team building exercise or whatever, or to see friends of mine. But also the fact that, like you say, yes, there are things here in Austin, such as, you know, the races and so forth, but um, there are people in Austin that like to get out and go out west and get out of the city. And I'm just thinking of, you know, Midland has a lot of things. The Permian Basin does have assets. They need, people in Austin need to know about them. But I think that people in Austin would be thrilled to come to the Permian Basin and to Midland to, for a weekend because it's, it's getting them out of the city and out, out west, you know, into the West Texas area. And this is where I think you have to empower your citizens to create those businesses. Because if you empower citizens, they're going to understand what businesses that people in Austin might be looking for because they have family and friends that live there and they know what those people are wanting to do outside the city. I have friends and family who live in the Austin area and I understand what they're looking for if they were to fly out here. And it's great that they have this now cheap and local flight. Now it's about giving them those things that make them wanna come here instead of go somewhere else that's a direct flight from Austin. So the thing about Austin Airport is that they can fly to a lot of places. So why would they choose Midland? We need to make sure that we're creating enough things here that they want to choose to come here. And I think having that initial draw, such as a USL soccer team, let's say our soccer team is playing the Austin soccer team and some of their fans come out here. Now they're staying in our hotels. They're eating at our restaurants. They're seeing what's happening in our local area. They're finding out where there is to go and what there is to do around here. And they're gonna go back and they're gonna tell their friends and they're gonna say, hey, you know, I went to Midland and man, I had this really good time. And I got to stay in this really nice hotel and I got to go have a really fun and entertaining time and blah, blah, blah. These are things that are gonna start bringing that attraction for other people from Austin or other cities to come here. But we have to make sure we're competitive with those other areas that they could go to so they want to come here. And I, and I think word of mouth will, would go a long ways. For, for example, when people talk about Mexican food, I'm like, I'd rather eat it in Midland than, or San Angelo than in Austin, I'm sorry. Or, you know, say, you know, this is a really good steak. Well, let me tell you about a good steak. I can go to Wall Street. You know, those kinds of things. And I, and I think, I hope maybe the flight will, will help that. And, and like you say, people get to talking uh, and, it, and it gets around. Um, I know we're running long. I just have two more questions that'll be fairly quick. The first one is, what are you hearing from Midlanders right now, and what are their concerns? So people in Midland are very concerned about their quality of life, their quality of place. They're very concerned about the basis of their city, the foundation of their city. They're concerned about their property tax rates. They're concerned about why they keep seeing their property taxes go through the roof, why their property valuations keep increasing so quickly, yet they're not seeing the value back for that money they're spending. I've had people recently come to me and say that they're considering moving to San Angelo, Lubbock, because those are areas where they feel they'll get a better value for their tax money, or at least not have to spend as much 
as what they spend in Midland just to live here. We have to understand that property taxes don't just affect a single homeowner. They affect the businesses that you do business with. They increase the prices. They increase rent prices at our apartment complexes. They increase hotel rent. They increase a lot of things that make our city less attractive to people who want to live here. And we have to understand that it's not just a property tax rate that we have to consider. It's also the fact that our valuations are getting and growing at an exorbitant rate. Since 2016, valuations in our city have increased by 29%. So if the city had not changed the property tax rate at all, their revenue would have gained by 29% over that period of time. But yet they're increasing the property tax rate as well. When we talk about the city's taxable value, it's increased by 42% over that time because we've added more areas to the city. So again, the city, without doing anything at a city council level, would be getting more revenue. But they're increasing the tax rate as well. And when we say that again, people are willing to pay taxes if they see value for what their money's going to. It's the same as watching at Walmart or Target. I'm gonna go where I feel I get the best value. I'm gonna vote with my wallet. So when I can vote with my wallet, I can move away from that city. I can take my money out of that city and I can spend it somewhere else. And I can help that other place get better instead of the place I live now. So we see a lot of people in Midland, especially young families, who are wondering why Odessa and Lubbock and San Angelo and Abilene are getting these family entertainment businesses and they're not coming to Midland. It's because it's simply cheaper to start a business in those areas with the same amount of customer base you would have in Midland, they're more competitive to gain those businesses. By increasing our property tax rate and our valuation, we are not staying competitive with our local competition, which are those cities. And it's harming us in being able to bring those entities to our city. And what that does is keeps our families from gaining new daycare facilities, family entertainment facilities, and other entities that they would want in their local city, whether that be Costco, whether that be another Walmart or another Target, whether that be small companies, all of those are more attracted to these other areas because they have similar populations, they have lower wages and lower taxes. Finally, I wanna wrap up with something more fun, a fun question. Uh, and you've indicated a few of these because we've talked about some pretty serious, you know, issues, some hot button issues here. I'd like to end on a fun note. What are the things that you and your family like to do in Midland? What do you enjoy? What are your favorite things? So our, our kids, of course, are hugely involved in local sports. My daughters play MSA soccer. My son plays PYB, P, PDYFL football. You know, and, and they love that. We love going to the, the, the Petroleum Museum. We love going to the Museum of the Southwest and doing things like that. We, we really like this local uh, shopping thing they're starting to do down in downtown that they're doing one week in a month. There's this really fun uh, uh, shopping, outdoor shopping thing they're doing. I can't remember what they call it, but um, it, it's, it's really fun. And, of course, we enjoy 
working, going throughout our community and, and visiting with people and talking to people and finding out more about people and, and just being able to get to know our neighbors a little bit better and having that interaction. And National Night Out was a great night. We got to go out. We got to see people that were our neighbors and our friends and our family and people who live down the road from us or around the block from us and people we didn't know and, and, and get to have that community experience. And, you know, Midland is, is a great city. And I want people to know that the city is a opportunity to be great and to continue to be great. And what brought me to Midland was the fact that Midland is a sound where if you work hard, if you, if you try and you persevere, you can become something great. And I want Midland to stay that way. I want the entrepreneurial spirit that brought our city along, that built our city from the ground up to be alive and well and to empower our citizens to do the things that they feel will make their city great and make their city better. And it, it just is such joy to watch when you have people who started a business and took the risk and built something from the ground up with their own bare hands to see them succeed, to see their hard work pay off and to see that spirit of community and, and camaraderie and that success to be developed from hard work and being able to persevere through bad times. It's a, it's a really great city. It's a really great city. Um, and Ross, thank you very much, Ross Schumann. Uh, thank you so much for enjoying, uh, for uh, joining us today. And yeah, we had a much longer interview than I was anticipating. So my apologies for that, but I thought we had a really great discussion. Well, I, I appreciate it. I, I warned you beforehand that <laughs> if you if you didn't stop me, I would talk forever. There's a, there's a very fine line I feel sometimes between talking for a short amount of time and getting a lot of questions but then not really giving any substance and talking for a long time and getting fewer questions, but really getting deep on that conversation. And while I appreciate people who can answer a lot of questions in a short amount of time, I do think our voters deserve to hear a deep dive into why somebody like me would want to run for office and what value I think I could bring to the city. And, and that's exactly what this show is about. So, so again, uh, Ross Schumann, who is a District 1 candidate. Thank, thank you again for being with us. Well, thank you so much. Tall City Elections is a nonpartisan and unbiased community project of the League of Women Voters of Midland and the Recording Library of West Texas. The League of Women Voters and the Recording Library did not endorse, support, or oppose any candidates for office or a political party. All candidates for office are invited to participate in this project.